You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Stephen, I've got a date for your diary. Ooh, are you inviting me to something? Well, it's a season for your diary, in fact. Okay. Rishi Sunak has finally tensively scotched expectations of a spring election. <laughs> so look, my, my working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And in the meantime, I've got lots that I want to get on with. The Prime Minister speaking in Mansfield yesterday. A working assumption. Yeah, interesting Interesting phrase, isn't it, from the man whose whose choice it is? I mean, I th- there was an element of this that I kind of thought, well, yeah. I mean, it, you the cards that you have to play when you are in government is that you get to choose the moment when to call the general election, and of course, he's going to try and make out as if it's going to be the furthest date away possible. Partly because it, you know, the element of surprise can help. He's obviously going to try and pick the moment that's most advantageous to him, get, especially given that you know they're so far behind in the polls versus. Labour, and the other element is, is that if you start telling people now that there's going to be a general election soon, not not only does it mean that everything that you say, people are going to stop listening to you or start thinking to you, thinking about it in a very different way. When you think about the legislative agenda as well, already not particularly heavy with the list of things that could be done, even if the Parliament did go to the very end of the potential term in January next year, but work on a lot of other, like preparing legislation, would essentially go out the window as everyone would be more worried about the election. Yeah, well, the, this card that governments hold is, is a massively important card, being able to choose the date of an election. Look, I think from a, a PR point of view, the idea that there would be a, a, a spring election and that they wouldn't crush the idea of a spring election was really disastrous. I mean, for me, it's a no-brainer to say it's going to be uh, later in the year because if you uh, if there is speculation continuing, as there has been, that the election might be in April or May, then it just looks like the Prime Minister is dithering. And of course, cast your mind back to Gordon mm. Brown, famously labelled Bottler Brown, because when he came in, he was very... Uh, 
popular at the time. He, he was riding high in the polls. You have to cast your mind back to the beginning of the Brown Premiership before uh, it went wrong. And there was lots of speculation that he would call a snap autumn election. And of course, he decided not to. And then it looked like he'd been dithering. And by the time he called the election May next year, the popularity had uh, evaporated. So I think uh, the Prime Minister really needs to be careful of that. Yeah, it certainly is something very interesting to think about, timing being everything in that. One date we do know, though, is that local elections will be happening on the 2nd of May. Um, they're in, a, you know, as always, a certain proportion of councils going to the polls. We have things like the mayoral elections, too, in, in London and Greater Manchester, Liverpool, Tees Valley, the West Midlands, more besides as well. Um, that'll be an interesting focus uh, for voters, too, particularly because of an, an issue that's been emerging in local councils and perhaps accelerating in uh, in the past year, which is the poor state of the finances of so many of these councils. So last year we had Birmingham, Nottingham and Woking effectively declaring bankruptcy by issuing what's known as a Section 114 notice. And Woking, uh, Bloomberg's been reporting that a council is councillors are set to vote on a package of cuts that includes things like closing the local swimming pool, cutting funding for sports and cultural programmes to try and uh, sort out their finances. We're going to talk a bit more now about the challenges facing local government. We're joined by Jack Shaw, an affiliate researcher at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. He's also a Labour councillor embarking in Dagenham, but that's not the hat you're wearing when talking to us today. Jack, welcome to the programme. Can you talk us through how widespread the financial issues are facing councils and, and are there others which we could be worried about filing these one, Section 114 notices? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an England-wide challenge. We are seeing historically unprecedented rates of Section 114s, as you've mentioned, which are in effect bankruptcy notices. The likelihood is that we may see another one, two, three, perhaps, before the general election. And in the main, the lack of investment in local authorities has been a really big challenge, but it's been exacerbated more recently by the high cost of borrowing and high interest rates and inflation. Now, there are two parts of this story, though, aren't there? One is the squeeze on local government funding, which you flag, but it isn't just that, is it? A number of these councils, Woking being an example, which happens to be a, a Conservative-run council, Woking invested a huge amount of money in commercial properties. So there are there is also mismanagement here, isn't there? Yeah, there are a, a small number of cases where there's been examples of poor or really poor governance. I think investing generally is not a bad thing, that's been exacerbated by the pandemic and changing behaviours. So we've seen in, in the case of Woking, but other local authorities too, that they've particularly attempted to invest in commercial property, namely shopping centres. And what's happened post-pandemic, where people have been quite used to buying things online more so than they were pre-pandemic, is that the value of those uh, shopping centres, those commercial spaces, are worth less because people are not interested in, in visiting them physically as much. Uh, so that's that's principally been the challenge in, with some of these investments. It's where places have invested in commercial property. We are certainly seeing examples of, as I've said, uh, of bad governance. And I think to some degree to be expected. So we've got 317 local authorities across England. There are always going to be a handful of outliers, perhaps 15 or 16 authorities that are at some risk in terms of poor governance. So what's the fix then? How do we fix this problem? Is it is it just changing 
is, is it a question simply of getting more money from central government? I don't think there's a simple fix, but whatever the fix entails, it must include additional investment. That is the the key driver of the nationwide challenge that's happening. Alongside that, though, as you suggest, given there are some governance challenges, it's worth revisiting things like uh, the lending rules in the case of Woking. You know, should relatively small authorities like Woking be borrowing as much as they have? Arguably not. Um, Equally, there is the establishment of the new Office for Local Government, which has basically been uh, set up to provide some direction, uh, in some sense, to local authorities in terms of their performance. And I think that is a good thing, given that the government scrapped the Audit Commission in 2015. Is this, a, is this an English problem? What's the situation like in the, in the other nations of the UK? Yeah, so in, in Wales and Scotland, the challenges are similar. I don't think they are as acute and they have kind of different uh, governance structures and so on. For example, in England, we have 317 authorities as part of what's called a two-tier system. So very simply, there's a large number of authorities and they're doing different things. Scotland and Wales, they have a far smaller number of authorities that all do the same thing. They all have the same responsibilities. So from a government perspective, the Scottish government and the Welsh government, I think, find it a lot easier to engage with the sector. Realistically, the UK government isn't going to be able to engage with 317 local authorities in England. And what that means is I think the Scottish and Welsh government has a better understanding of what the issues is and therefore can be a bit more responsive in a way that the UK government can't for English local authorities. I also think that... uh, in Wales and Scotland, there have been some some differences in terms of the generosity of of the investment. So the the challenge financially hasn't been as acute there. Does this? I mean, is higher council tax going to be a consequence of these financial problems? Are are we going to end up paying more as a result to maintain council services? Yes. Ironically, council taxes will inevitably increase to the maximum the government allows, which is 5% in most places in England. So your council tax is going to rise by 5%. But council tax alone is quite a regressive tax. It can't possibly cover the cost in terms of the demand pressures that local authorities are facing. What we will see is local authorities increasing council tax to the maximum that they're allowed they'll still equally be making savings and reducing services. So taxpayer is going to higher their council tax and get a poorer service. As you've mentioned, the funding for local authorities has fallen a lot over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Do you think that the next Labour government, with all the other spending priorities it has, and quite frankly, the lack of cash there will be, do you think there's going to be more money for local government? I don't think there will be more money for local government, and I think that's a mistake. Um, the Institute for Government has said that local authorities received about £45 billion a year in 2009-10. A decade later, that was about £28 billion. So councils have seen a reduction of somewhere between 15 to £17 billion over that period, at a time when pressures are increasing. We've got a, an older population that requires more social care support, for example. 
So I, yeah. I definitely think there needs to be more money in the system, but I don't think that's going to be forthcoming. There are, though, tweaks that can, can take place. You can give councils additional flexibilities to raise income through other means. So it doesn't have to be a government investment per se. It would certainly be helpful. Okay, Jack Shaw, affiliate researcher at the Bennett Institute of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's turn to another interesting story out today. The growth in the market share of electric vehicles in the UK has stalled. Roughly one in six cars registered in the UK last year were fully electric. Carmakers are now calling on the government to cut taxes on these vehicles to help them meet a new requirement for manufacturers for a certain proportion of their sales to be zero emission. We're going to dig into this with our automotive editor, Craig Trudell, in a moment. But Craig's also been speaking to the Technology and Decarbonisation Minister, Anthony Brown, about the new mandate. Let's take a listen. It's one of the most uh, ambitious uh, mandates uh, or progress to uh, move this technology transition to electric vehicles of any major uh, country in the world. 80% of electric vehicles use sales by 2030. Uh, and what it, the, the significance of it is that it gives certainty to industry and indeed consumers about the direction that we're going. And, and uh, we've, we've done it in collaboration with all major uh, car companies. They're incredibly supportive of it because their they're investing decisions need certainty. If you're going to invest many multiple billions of pounds in uh, building out electric car cars, you need to confidence that there's going to be the demand there. Uh, the, so as a speaker in the BP Pulse place, but uh, with electric charge what operators, they are uh, incredibly supportive of it because again, it gives them a certainty for their investment decisions. Uh, so that they, you've recently had six billion pounds uh, promised by investment uh, decisions by the car companies to uh, deal with electric vehicles and components in the UK. So I mean Ford and uh, um, Stellantis and uh, uh, Jaguar Land Rover, Nissan, uh, and then uh, the charge point operators, the companies they've uh, they've got they're uh, uh, investing six billion pounds as well, same amount of money uh, on building out the charge point network and. To make those sort of decisions, you need to know that that's the direction that you're going. The Technology and Decarbonisation Minister, Anthony Brown, speaking to Bloomberg's Craig Trudell in a car park, I should point out. Craig's with us now for more. Can you just talk us through then what these plans from the government will mean for consumers when it comes to electric cars? Yeah, I, I think that the, the EV sales mandate that went into effect in January is really uh, you know, a matter of, uh, of policy affecting the manufacturers. Uh, as we mentioned off the top, uh, a certain proportion of their sales will have to, have to be zero emissions starting this year. And the number is quite high it's 22 percent and and so last year uh the share of ev sales was about 16 and a half percent so that's quite a jump in just one year especially uh after you know as we mentioned off the top the fact that the share has been flattening um you know just in in the past year uh it, it also you know is worth sort of taking into consideration that that 22 percent is a by manufacturer uh, basis. So, you know, you have some companies like Tesla, of course, that are entirely electric and many, many other manufacturers who are way short of that 22% figure. There's a lot of flexibilities in there that we can get into, but absolutely it is the case, as the minister said, that, uh, you know, a clear message has been sent that this is the way that manufacturers need to go forward. And for the consumer, that means that, uh, you know, the choices that you're going to have uh, this year and in the coming years, it's, it's going to, you know, in, in very dramatic fashion, switch over to, to fully electric vehicles. Now, there are two sides to this story, aren't there? Because one is the sale of electric vehicles, but the other one is the infrastructure which goes with it. I see yes. car charging points being 
built all over the place. But wh- where are we in the UK in terms of getting that infrastructure ready? Are, are we doing a good job? How do we compare to to other European countries? Yeah, I, I think you know the the UK. I mean, when you when you think about uh, how many chargers are needed to support the level of sales, I think it's actually you know the the UK is is doing okay. I think there are uh, of course areas of the UK that are s- still sort of charging deserts. Uh, there's a lot of concern about the fact that around here in London and in the southeast, uh, you know, you're much uh, you know more likely to to come across uh, charging options and. Uh, you know, be able to get around in an EV without a whole lot of trouble. Uh, the the question is really the you know the the rest of of the country and you know we're we're talking about you know roughly somewhere in the area of forty five chargers a day. Uh, in in order to get to you know the levels that the government wants to get to uh, by the end of the decade, we need more like one hundred and ten chargers a day. So that gives you a sense of you know how far behind in terms of the pace that we need. Uh, to be on to get to where the government believes we need to to, to be to support uh, the the green uh, goals that they've set. So, what's the plan essentially to bring that up to speed? How are the the government trying to increase the rollout of that and and get that infrastructure in place? It's a really thorny issue, right? Because uh, it comes down to uh, sort of nitty gritty details like grid connections and permits, and it's a very local issue where you know there isn't a, a real sort of national policy for how you go about getting uh, charging uh, points a- approved and, uh, you know, the process can take, you know, a good 12 to 18 months in terms of lead time. So, you know, a- as a charge point uh, operator, you can have, you know, uh, a desire to uh, put charge points all over the place, uh, but you can't just sort of snap your fingers and do that. And it, it the, the variations on a local basis between how, you know, one government handles things and another does, uh, that, that makes for a real sort of complication is, and is one of the, you know, main things that the industry cites as, you know, a way that things could be uh, sort of sped up here uh, and, and sort of, you know, clear the red tape out of the way. In terms of tax incentives for uh, electric cars, uh, unsurprisingly, the industry want to see to see more of these. What are the prospects of the government cutting tax on electric vehicles? Because we're one of the few places in Europe which doesn't directly subsidize personal purchases. Is, is that right? Yeah, there was an electric vehicle uh, grant that went away in uh, June of 2022, I believe. Uh, and that was the the last bit of support for just private uh, electric vehicle purchases. And the sort of, you know, reasoning behind that that, that the minister, you know, referred to in speaking with me was uh, basically that the government had taken a view that, you know, we had sort of reached uh, a point where EVs could sort of stand alone uh, a little bit. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, the business uh, side of, of the market, uh, you know, company cars and, and uh, you know, those sorts of purchases, uh, those are still subsidized. I think what we've seen uh, o- over the time since that grant went away is really a, a dramatic slowdown in terms of the, the take up among uh, private consumers. And so, you know, on one hand, uh, will the government look at the, the figures? I think the data, it tells a, a very clear story that, yes, uh, the slowdown has been quite dramatic in terms of EV take up by private consumers. We talked earlier about, you know, one in six uh, vehicles uh, total being 
uh, electric vehicles last year. When you look at just uh, private uh, vehicle purchases last year, that that drops to one in eleven in terms of the take up, and wow. so that gives you a sense of you know a, a clear indication of of support being needed. Is is this a problem for the government to resolve? I'm kind of curious about how other countries are looking at this as well, because there's there's a huge drive, certainly in Europe anyway, to increase the share of electric cars on the road to decrease emissions. We know there are supply difficulties about actually being able to build the cars to meet demand, but how much help do consumers need to be able to be encouraged to switch to electric? I think what we've seen is, is uh, you know, it, it, it is the case that EVs, it, it may still be too early to say that these can sort of stand on their own. Uh, I, I think we need to be sort of honest and, and clear-eyed about that, that when when we do see incentives being pulled away, we do see a very clear reaction in terms of how they are, are taken up in, in the market. And so, you know, you, you talk about, uh, you know, places in the world where, uh, electric vehicles have have caught on the fastest places like Norway. You know, it, this was a sustained, consistent level of support on the part of of the state. Uh, you know, to push uh, consumers uh, to go electric. I do think, of course, there is a, a time and place where. Uh, you know, EVs are going to have to sort of stand on their own two legs. But I don't think we're there yet in, in terms of, you know, seeing clear uh, evidence of, of the fact that when uh, government support is pulled away, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have an impact. And we saw that even in Germany late last year, where there was a bit of a pullback where the manufacturers had to step in actually to sort of make up for the fact that, that the government was pulling some support away. And we still saw EV sales, uh, you know, have, have an effect in EV sales in the month of December. How do we compare with other countries in Europe, bro- broadly speaking, in the take up of, of EVs? I, I think, in terms of uh, you know just sheer volumes, uh, the UK is uh, number two. Uh, but of course, the the UK is the number two market uh, in terms of market share. Uh, you know the the. Uh, UK ranks in in the sort of bottom half of of uh, countries in in Europe, and so uh, that that is one of the things that uh, the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, uh, you know, it's sort of another arrow in their quiver in terms of the case that they're making to the gov- to the government that you know a, a VAT tax reduction would make sense. Another car in their garage, maybe uh, yes. for argument <laughs> as well. Craig Tudell, our automotive editor, thanks very much for joining us. Details of that story really interesting to think about this, of course, in context of the the debate that's been had about how the Conservative Party watered down some of the green commitments and pushed back some of the objectives too when they want that full transition to zero emission cars happening. So a political debate playing out through the eyes of the industry there as well and great to get Craig's view on that too. Now, Ewan Potts, you are having a very exciting 2024 because you are off to Dubai for a couple of months to work in our office there. So you're going to be taking a bit of a break from us here on UK Politics. Um, I think our audience probably knows you best as the creator of the small rant um, <laughs> and your small rants have become famous slash infamous during the uh, conduct of this program I noted g- going back uh, through my notes my extensive notes uh, your small rants about housing uh, supermarkets and trains which I think are probably your three three favourite subjects yes I think that's probably, probably the only three subjects you can talk about <laughs> but you can talk about them at length and with great gusto. Uh, so that's one of the things that we're we're going to miss about having you around the office. But I wonder, have you been checking through your calendar, perhaps, for some things you might be missing on the UK politics front while you're away? Well, I did wonder when they offered me this uh, this job in Dubai if I could be missing lots of exciting things in UK politics. And I think, courtesy of the Prime Minister, just saying yesterday <laughs> that we're probably not going to get a spring election. Luckily, 
I'm not going to miss this very exciting election. I'm going to be missing a lot of rubbish weather. Mm. Uh, and I'm also going to be missing some of the lead up to the local elections. We've got a really interesting set of local elections coming up on uh, May the 2nd. Yes. So when I get back, we should just be talking about that. But uh, yeah, really interesting. If you look at the comparables, actually, these were last fought in 2021. They were supposed to take mm. place in 2020, but of course, there was the small matter of the pandemic. And 2021, if you cast your mind back, it seems like a long time ago, May 21, the government was riding high, actually, because of the uh, COVID vaccine rollout. Uh, so there was a, a lot of support for the Conservatives, having done a good job uh, on the vaccines. Uh, so when we think about the swingometer, perhaps, the swingometer mm. could be quite dramatic this time around. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at local elections, you always need to look at the comparables. And actually, the Conservatives managed to gain more than 200 seats in 2021, even if it was a midterm election. Yeah. Uh, Labour lost more than 300. So it was a pretty lousy election uh, for Labour. Keir Starmer, of course, was in charge back then as well. These one of his one of his first sets of elections, but they were not a good set of elections for Labour. So this time we'll be expecting uh, Labour and indeed the Lib Dems to do well in these local elections. The interesting see- thing will be to see just how badly the Tories do and where they do badly as well. So this will give us an interesting pointer uh, as to which parts of the country the Conservatives are most vulnerable and which perhaps their vote is holding up perhaps better than uh, some people are expecting. Yeah, and given that the the expected proximity to the general election as well, will it be an interesting, perhaps, predictor of, of where sentiment is at that point? Yeah, well, I think you always have to be slightly careful with these local elections uh, and pinning too much onto the general election. But it will be a real test of real votes uh, in the ballot box because, of course... Opinion could be interesting polls, for turnout as well. Very interesting for turnout. And, of course, opinion polls... Uh, are useful but at the end of the day they're not real votes of people when there isn't a general election uh, in the offing and most people are not thinking about the general election constantly like uh, us, uh, like us. <laughs> <laughs> then it's, it, it isn't real Is this, in the way Are you concerned about shy Tories? Do you remember them? Yeah, well, that's uh, certainly, and, and there was a case of, of, of shy Labour voters at one point as well. But yeah, shy Tories uh, are a thing. And I think it'll be interesting to see uh, at this election whether uh, some people start to come out of, uh, out of the woodwork. I mean, if you look at the opinion polls at the moment, Labour, of course, are about 20, sometimes 25 points ahead. So that mm. is a commanding lead. That's plenty to get an overall majority. But these are midterm polls. And you remember that Neil Kinnock, for much of the Thatcher period, was well ahead in the polls. Neil Kinnock was going to be the next Prime Minister. That never happened. Yeah. Ed Miliband was going to be the next Prime Minister. He was ahead of the polls uh, for much of that Parliament. And, of course, that never happened. So you have to be quite careful with these opinion polls. And, look, all politics is local, which means that local issues can often dictate things much more I suppose close to voting to voting intentions rather than the big national picture and whereas we tend to look at things from that big national picture and as you say we're paying lots of attention to the idea of the the kind of swing in, in local election seats it's, it's perhaps could be things much closer to people's own lives that they're worried about like what we were talking about earlier with the finances in some parts of the country. Yes I, th- I think that's quite right and I think the, the really tricky thing for the Tories is they can't really well they will have to fight one election one national election but the, t- the votes that the Tories are targeting are very, very different. And that's never happened for them before because now they have a constituency not just uh, in the wealthy parts of the southeast, you know, the mm. typical Tory parts, you know, Surrey and Buckinghamshire, etc. They're also fighting those seats in really quite poor towns in the Midlands and the north. They're working class voters with very different priorities to yeah, the- people, if you like, in the south. And that is quite tricky to try and target your election message to two very different yeah. constituencies. That is going to be uh, very, very tricky for the Tories. You and we will miss 
your searing election analysis over the next couple of months, uh, but very glad to get a preview of some of your thoughts over the next couple of weeks. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Well, this episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. Ewan will be back with more in April. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.